our first topic. So we've decided to do a, a deep dive into climate. That's one of the major issues in Canadian politics for the upcoming election. I would, I would say even for the last couple of elections. It's, it's a very big dividing line between the right and the left. I would say between rural and urban as well. And in many ways, it's twisting the urban-rural divide more towards the the right and the left, respectively. Yeah. Well, it, it's causing a bit of polarization, to say the least. We see lots of pipeline politics in, in the news. You see the Trudeau liberals trying to thread kind of a middle path, letting some pipelines, some infrastructure projects be built, even to the point of purchasing them. Uh, while on the left, uh, the NDP is at least federally just committed against these high-profile infrastructure projects. Oh, absolutely. And meanwhile, on the uh, right wing, you have complete support for the infrastructure projects and any idea of regulating CO2 emissions is uh, basically sacrilege. So, what, I mean, let's talk about the science behind this. Like, let's let's go way back. So, we're on a rock yes. in space. <laughs> With an atmosphere. So if you're looking at the science, so there, there's, a, there's a lot of stuff that's important when you're looking at climate. So first of all, you have to, you have to know about like the, the gases that make up our atmosphere. So 80% of the, almost 80% of the atmosphere is nitrogen. It's just a stable gas that acts as a intermediary for everything else that's going to happen. 20% of it is oxygen. And then you start getting into really, really the small gases. But the, as it turns out, the small gases are actually the most relevant when it comes to climate. Like 400 parts per million CO2. Like that seems like a very small yeah, it's, amount. Uh, yeah, it's like, what, 0.4%? Is that right? Yeah. yeah no, it's even yeah, less Yeah, I thought it was that. less. Uh, yeah, because one part in 100 would be 1%. Yeah. 10,000 so, parts per yeah, million is a percent. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, 10,000 parts per million is, yeah, so 1,000 parts per million is 0.1%. So we're talking 0. 0.04%. That's not a lot of gas. And so it's easy to see why, where the skepticism no comes from well absolutely like it, it is such a small portion of the atmosphere um and i mean you, you look at some of the other stuff uh like water vapor is a significantly larger portion Car of i mean carbon's the issue how do we know like that carbon traps heat like what's what is a mechanism the, the greenhouse so-called greenhouse mechanism how does that work so uh, on the simplest level you can actually do this experiment if you can get some dry ice because co2 is really dense you can actually pour it into a uh, into like a aquarium that's got a light above it and if you pour it in even if the gas is cold it will over the period of time it'll raise the temperature of the uh, of that aquarium and it's and it comes down simply to the fact that co2 absorbs certain wavelengths of infrared light what what is a wavelength that differentiates like light from infrared so wavelengths it, it it, the easiest thing to do is just compare it to uh, a wave on, an, on the ocean. So if your waves are very, very, very close together, th then you have a short wavelength. And if they're very spread apart, it's a longer wavelength. And, and so the higher, hi the higher energy the source, the shorter the wavelength is, the closer the, the crests of the waves are together. Exactly. Okay, but it's not like there's. It's not like the ocean. Like, what is the medium through which these electromagnetic waves are being transmitted? So, yeah, yeah, we're getting into some pretty advanced physics here. So, uh, all the physical uh, waves that we talk about when we're talking about electromagnetics or 
electrons or any of the subatomic subatomic type particles. They are all in their own, uh, I don't know how to describe it, basically their own field. So when we talk about electromagnetic waves, we're talking about waves, electromagnetic waves in the electromagnetic field. And this field is everywhere. It permeates all of space and time. Uh, but it's, you know, it's, it's, it only is affected by, you know, electromagnetic waves going through it. And they can then interact with other fields, but it's ultimately when you're talking about electromagnetic wavelengths and light and infrared and x-rays or gamma rays, whatever, they're all part of the electromagnetic spectrum and they're all oscillations in this electromagnetic field. And so I'm going off of the image of an, of the ocean and of waves like the surf, the crests of waves in the ocean. Mm -hmm. But obviously there's no crest of light. Like how is it a wave? Is it like the, the amplitude of... Uh, amplitude matters um, in terms of like... Amplitude is like the number of photons being transmitted uh, versus the... Um, wavelength is just the the how close they are together so okay but like how close what are together uh so and it's the same it is actually the same concept it is it is actually crests there are crests in the electromagnetic field there are like where uh, like because there's no it's not like there's a physically upside of a light beam of light. actually it's it's kind of cool there? there is an there is a physical upside to a beam of light that's why you can polar when you have polarized sunglasses you're actually eliminating and eliminating the wave direction and you're you're limiting it only to ones that could possibly cross vertically through the through the uh, uh the slits that make up a polarized sunglasses in the same way that those are the only particles that like wavelengths that will pass through the slits in your sunglasses infrared light is the physical wave that it travels on is the same size as a carbon dioxide molecule. exactly am i understanding that yeah correctly? yeah exactly so when we're talking it's wavelength is about the same size as a or is very very close to carbon monoxide or carbon dioxide particles so so i'm picturing a squiggly line yeah. like but that can't be how it is it, it is actually it's a pretty comparable it's a squiggly line and it moves in but in in three dimensions because i can only visualize that it's in like two dimensions in time. Uh, yeah. So the best way to look at it is light travels in straight straight lines. So think about a line that's squiggling up and down. A straight, a straight squiggly a, line. A, like it's traveling in straight lines, but you got squiggles going uh, perp perpendicular is it like pulsing? to it. Is it like, is it like pulsing in and out? Yeah, that would be a good way of describing it. Kind of in and out, in and out. So basically, you, if you think about it in terms in three dimensions, it's you've got a straight line. So you're not going to have any uh, wave in that line, right? No. But you can have waves moving in and out in the other directions. So the size of the line. The sides and the, like, so basically along the line to the right and above it and to the left and below it. It's, it's vibrating in, along two axes. Yeah, perpendicular. Like a, like a like a string except it's not just like vibrating up and down it's going like in every every potential direction perpendicular to the axis of its track exactly 
Okay. Yeah. It's it, electromagnetic radiation is pretty interesting. There's you know, like advanced physics. Like I wish I knew physics better because some of the stuff that goes on is just really awesome. Uh, okay. Yeah. If you have a photograph of it, it, it makes a lot more sense to be honest. Okay. Uh, and I'm still having a hard time with like what it actually is. Yeah. I mean, it's a vibration. But maybe so do. Yeah, I mean, it is a physicists. vibration in a field which we can only really experience in unilateral directions. It's, it's or in single straight directions. It's a vibration in a. It's a vibration in a field uh, that's traveling. It's a traveling vibration in a field that encompasses everything. Exactly. That would be the best way of describing it. Okay, but so this light's coming from the sun, right? Obviously. That was a rhetorical question. Uh, actually, that, that's actually a, a, that's an important point. It, it actually is not coming from the sun. So um, the vast majority of the light emitted from the sun that reaches Earth is in the visible spectrum. It's, it's the stuff you can see. And it's actually fairly short wavelength. And CO2 doesn't affect it at all. So it pa the light that comes from the sun passes through the carbon dioxide. Absolutely. Straight through. No, there's no resistance from it. So that's where water vapor, if it forms clouds, you're going to reflect a lot of that visible light. Okay. I mean, just so what, why, right. like how, how is it that carbon dioxide doesn't reflect the light, but it reflects the And heat? so and it has everything to do with the carbon-oxygen bond. And as it turns out... Its length uh, is just happens to be in the infrared spectrum. So when when light hits the Earth, a lot of it gets absorbed. But uh, as part of entropy, things tend to become more disorganized. So when light is absorbed and re-emitted, it's re-emitted at lower wavelengths. So all this visible light becomes infrared when it starts radiating back out into space. So because infra um, means on. Below, right? Right, exactly. Below, below the red. So, like ultraviolet. And so, if you look at a, if you look at a rainbow, yeah. actually, a rainbow is a perfect, yeah, because the prism is dividing up the light that you can see into those various. So, um, if if we could see infrared, if we like, so I think bees can. Yeah, yeah, lots, lots of some creatures. Lots of other creatures can see it. Uh, we have cameras. You can, you, know, you see it on the internet sometimes if they're trying to track so somebody down. But. Would would we see in the rainbow? Would we see that yeah, infrared? Yeah, it would be. It would be very. Yeah, red? it would be below red. It would be some color that was, I guess, I don't know. It, oh. It's kind of a philosophical question, what, how it would appear. But yeah. <laughs> so so above, and in, in the worst meat definition of the word philosophical, in, and so ultraviolet, like ultra is above violet. So right. those are the colors that we would see and, above the and, rainbow. Exactly. And a cool point, if you actually ever get your cataracts out, you'll actually be able to see higher up into the ultraviolet spectrum. So if you actually look at uh, Monet's paintings before and after he had his cataracts out, before he had his cataracts out, everything was really, really, really red. And then after he had them out, they were extremely blue and purple. So it's, yeah, it's, it's, huh. it's a, yeah, exactly. Huh, so it's, it's a, it's a noticeable thing that's, that's been, uh, <laughs> that exists. And, you, and so are you, are you telling me heat and light are essentially the same thing? In terms of electromagnetic radiation yeah they're identical it's just one is lower yeah exactly it's just the length of the the wave so um wavelength is directly proportional to the amount of energy light has so if you've got a really really short wavelength like it's going up and down very very quickly it's got a lot more energy than if that's spread out over a long long area of space so the electromagnetic radiation you can go all the way from radio waves which have like wavelengths in the orders of kilometers down to gamma rays, which are, you know, 
<laughs> almost like mind-numbingly small. Like even visible light is in the nanometer range. So there, there's a huge range of these of this. What's uh, a nanometer? Nanometer. It would be one one billionth of a meter. So you, we're talking extremely small. So even infrared is still well, like is in the millimeter range, right? So or or small or micrometer range. So the light comes in. The electromagnetic radiation from the sun comes in in the wavelengths that we can see, or rather, it, it would probably be more accurate to say that we see. Yeah. The wavelengths that it comes in yeah is. just because it happens to be the one that's most beneficial in our environment and then when it when it hits the ground yeah it just anything on earth it hits anything and when it's re-radiated it's coming out in a lower wavelength as heat yes as well as infrared radiation would be a better description what's the difference between infrared radiation and heat uh heat can also include but basically heat can be divided into three different things you can start talking about uh you know conductive uh, convective and radiate radiative heat. So when we're talking about infrared radiation, we're just talking about the radiative radiation part of that. Uh, okay. Versus if you're talking about convection and conduction, that's like physical contact or you know gas moving up in circles. And so fluid, now it, it it bounces up off the ground. It comes up and it gets hit. It hits the carbon dioxide and then bounces back down to earth, like great like panes of glass in a greenhouse let light pass but they don't allow the heat to escape exactly it's exactly the same concept and it works very very similar and it just turns out that in the case of glass it's the same principle the 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 distance that the uh molecules are bonded at allows light to travel like visible light to travel right through but happens to absorb and then re-radiate infrared but so i mean carbon dioxide it goes up it goes down throughout the historical record how do we know what we're doing is significant so the first way to look at it is just to look at what the the values were before we started emitting large amounts of it so pre-industrially it's somewhere between 260 and 270 parts per million and uh right now we're, we're right around 410 by end of century we're probably up around 600 right so we're we're taking the we're taking the base numbers and at least doubling it are, are you telling me Earth is going to get doubly as hot? And that I would say it probably won't because you're, again, you're talking about a very, very small percent of things. My, my point is that there are other things that impact the temperature of the planet Earth and carbon dioxide and maybe play a bigger role. Oh, and, and actually, and that's an interesting point. So uh, when it comes to uh, the most important greenhouse gas, it's actually water vapor. It has more effect on the Earth than anything else. The problem is, is that if you warm up the temperature, you end up with more water vapor. And then the water vapor raises the temperature even more until you you meet uh, you come to a new equilibrium. Even small initial pushes from the CO2 can be magnified when it starts going into that. The other thing is is that um, when you start talking about thermodynamics, what's the average temperature of Earth right now? And you say, oh well, it's like 10 or 15 degrees Celsius. Now the problem is is that you say, oh well, yeah, you double the temperature scientific scaling it's actually in kelvin realistically the actual temperature of earth is like 287 so if you have a one percent increase in the temperature you're actually talking about three degrees okay but the the temperature has fluctuated greatly in the past like when the dinosaurs were kicking around like how hot was it then 
Uh, dinosaurs was relatively modest. Like, it was fairly mild. It was a little warmer than it is currently, but not that much more. The really, really warm period was actually after they died out. And that's, that, that's known as the Eocene Thermal Maximum. So that's, uh, that was a, a particularly interested, interesting era because you had forests going right up to the poles. And not just, like, forests, tropical forests with palm trees and, and monkeys. And there were still animals and creatures and happy life. Like, why, why should we be worried about that kind of future? It's not, it, well, and this is the thing, is that from a perspective of does everyone, like, does life go on on Earth? And the answer is yes. The question is which part of the worlds are now, like, good to live on? And obviously the poles are actually a relatively small area compared to the uh, equator. So if you lose, like the, right now humans can live anywhere along the equator. So, you know, for several thousand miles in every direction. So if you lose, if you gain a thousand miles in the Arctic, but lose a thousand miles at the equator, you actually net lose a huge amount of available space. So there's also a lot of rock up there. Yes. It's not... Yeah, and that's the thing. Like, what do you do with soils? It's trippy. It's like the ice age just ended. Yeah, exactly. Like all these like all these like lakes full of trout and rocks moss. everywhere. Yeah. yeah, and no soil to be spoken of. So you weird always... animals with like strange curly horns running around. <laughs> exactly. It's trippy. Are you, Long are you, hair. Or you have mus muskox that are you know smell yeah. terrible from miles away. Can't say I ever smelled one. Yeah, you've never smelled one. No, can't say. No, I haven't either. They they only really live up on like Greenland. Oh, I've seen. I saw plenty. And, no, uh, in Nunavut, there's loads. They came and they sniffed the diesel, yeah, yeah. the diesel fuel drums all the time. Oh, cool. They say that like it's... underneath all that hair, they're actually like really scrawny. Yeah, well, they don't exactly live off a lot of food. <laughs> they're living off like lichen. And they got the a bit like the helicopter pilots are super wary of getting too close to them because like I guess it's very common if you spook one with a hel like we spook a herd with a helicopter, and they and they bolt. They can easily hurt their legs because the footing's so terrible. They're kind of frail. 15,000 years ago, yeah. there was like a massive ice sheet. And now that's gone. And we don't know why that's gone. So it's like, why should we get stressed? Like, what's is what we're doing in, in a different magnitude than and what? The short answer is, is that in terms of magnitude, this is pretty comparable to a lot of the stuff that happens on Earth. The real big difference is the speed at which it's happening. You can even take it back to like Earth's formation, like way, way back. So you start off with the solar system and uh, it's a planetary disk. You got a bunch of gas and some of it's all being compressed down to the sun. But then there's a whole bunch of leftovers that are around on a disk around it. And those start forming the planets. Earth's a rock and has a methane atmosphere. Methane atmosphere. There's a little bacteria. We don't know where they came from. Maybe they came from space. Maybe they didn't. Maybe, yeah, or it may very well just be part of the thermodynamic process. Actually, some if you start looking, some there's been some really interesting research done recently. Um, they're looking into how life is better at raising entropy faster than inanimate objects. Oh, whoa. So there's there might be like a weird, spooky, entropy-related poll. Reason why, why you get this local organization, because the local organization is more Man. effective. There's a lot of like woo-woo in in modern science. Yeah, this this one is is particularly interesting though. Yeah, but that's also why like you end up with a living planet is actually going to have a more balanced temperature 
because that more balanced temperature is going to be more effective at raising. What do you mean balanced in terms of like night and day? Exactly. Like it's yeah, it's it's only like minus sixty to thirty here, or minus sixty to forty on Earth, whereas on Mars it's like minus a hundred to like plus whatever hundred. I don't know. Or even just go to the moon, right? And right. there right. it's like plus 300 down to negative 200. Like you're getting big variations in temperature. So narrowing that variation. So how, so how like, Earth used to be like that, though, probably. Big uh, ball well, of magma. Well, yeah, big ball of magma. But then we got an atmosphere without, without the uh, influence of life. So there was like... Methane. Yeah, methane, nitrogen, and CO2 were the main initial components. Okay. So... And to be honest, for the first couple billion years, life really didn't have any effect on the atmosphere in any significant way. What do we think it did? Like, did it photosynthesize? Did no, it... no. Before that, before the invention of, before, well, not the invention, but the, before the uh, creation, evolution, evolution of, of photosynthesis, before that, they're almost certain that it was all chemophoretic type stuff. So the sun would, you know, the energy would come in, it would hit a chemist, chemical, it would break a bond, and then, you know, the the cells could gobble that, like, energetic substance up and then use it to run their cellular processes. Or they were dependent upon geologic, um, like, geologic energy sources, which, you know, down at the thermal vents, they still are. Um so, but for a really, really long time, like life just kind of got along. They're all single cells. Nothing was happening. But then you get photosynthesis. And this started a very interesting period because the atmosphere at this stage starts to be affected by life for the first time. And this happened roughly three billion years ago. And there's this long period where the oxygen levels in the atmosphere being released by the photosynthesis never rise above 1% because there's weathering going on and basically the whole planet... Weathering, so what's that? The oxygen being absorbed into rock. Exactly. So you've got iron-bearing minerals. Well, yeah, oxygen loves iron. That's why Mars is red. It's where all its oxygen is. So there's all these little bacteria. They're emitting all this oxygen. And but then it's getting soaked up it's by just getting the surface soaked. of the Earth itself. Yeah, exactly. And so the levels don't rise. And in fact, the the Earth atmosphere remains a lot. There's still a lot of methane left during this period. But then eventually, rather suddenly, it ends. The level of oxygen starts rising rapidly. And it, it goes from like 1% to 30 and it does this over the course of a couple million years. And so that's not it's not super stable though. If you have a, a atmosphere with a lot of methane and a lot of oxygen. Oh no, it's it's terribly unstable. That's the thing. Like you, you get uh, if you we have a lot alarms of that go off when that situation happens. Yeah, because it explodes. <laughs> so methane is an incredibly unstable substance in higher oxygen concentrations. And so what happens is is it breaks down. So in our current atmosphere Methane has a half-life of about 30 years because that's how long it takes before randomly it's going to break down. So Break down into just like through chemical... Uh, through sun action, mostly. So through you, the sun. You, you, okay. break, you break a bond on the methane, so it's four, four hydrogens and a carbon. You break one of, the, uh, one of the hydrogens off and then an oxygen comes in and rips, rips the rest of the thing. Then it shreds. splits into carbon dioxide. And water. 
and water. Yeah. So that's that that process starts happening in the atmosphere and it happens suddenly and you go from this anoxic environment to a very high level of oxygen in a relatively short period of time and it kills almost everything <laughs> and this is the great oxygen. oxygen was toxic yeah so because all all the all the life that was living on earth at this point had not evolved to handle oxygen in any significant way. And so what qualities. kind of life are we... We're, this is all single-celled organisms. All single-celled organisms, know, eh? yeah. Absolutely. No yeah. evidence of little little creatures. No, we don't have any evidence of anything bigger than single-celled organisms at this stage. Would but, there be Would there be evidence if there were? Uh, almost certainly, yes. Uh, we have pretty good records after multicellular life shows up of like it happening pretty much immediately. Uh, once once so in the pattern, rock yeah in the rocks like once you have the rock layers it it tends to it tends to kick in like we have evidence of uh there's actually this life still exists on earth they form these stacks big brown like bulbous stacks in the water and they currently live in sharks bay in australia is where they discovered them and they're identical to the ones that existed like three billion years ago because and we have these things all over the earth and we found them in a lot of different places in the geologic record. So if you had bigger life, it would it would also show up if it was in any way common. So the oxygen came in, killed all the bacteria. Almost everything. There obviously some of the uh, there were a few that survived and could handle oxygen. Uh, the plants, the well, protoplant bacteria that have the chloroplasts are already, you know, they're emitting all this oxygen all the time. So for them, yeah, higher higher levels of it, whatever, no problem. But for a lot of stuff, it just died. And this is the first big change in the atmosphere because when you remove all this methane, remember the sun, this is, this is two and a half billion years ago. The sun is not nearly as luminous as it is today. And you have now removed one of the strongest, most potent greenhouse gases out there. So the temperature have, plummeted. And it plummets. And you get what's called the Huronian glaciation. And it lasts for hundreds of millions of years and it you end up with a situation where it may have frozen all the way to the equator They're not so the quite... earth the earth has gone through lots of phases where it was just a giant ice ball oh yeah there this happened more than once so this this was just the first event where this really took off and th this you're going to start noticing a pattern here where <laughs> where the plants get the upper hand and drive the co2 into the ground or drive the methane into the ground and then they something changes and you know suddenly you get a big release of co2 or methane or whatever and it drives it back up again so and th these are the natural long-term cycles but they happen over like we're talking millions and millions of years these are very very slow cycles um, as opposed to what we might possibly be inflicting upon in like, our yeah, on our environment in a century right so we've got the, so that was the first event Things eventually it breaks, temperatures start warming up again. You know whether that's because the sun is becoming more bright and it finally overwhelms the frozen world and brings it back up to a reasonable temperature or otherwise, but it eventually ends. And then things relatively stabilize for a while. And and then we see the first multi-celled or animals and plants. And well, that takes another creatures. That takes that... another two billion years. Wow. So, and this is one of the fun things is like, yeah, you've got, you've got photosynthesis figured out, but the next big thing that when you start talking about like what the next big jump is, is that you get what's called eukaryotic cells 
where you actually have a big cell eats a uh, like a smaller cell and has indigestion and then they end up getting along really well together so in humans for example we have met mitochondria which if everyone knows the powerhouse of the cell it's almost certainly a leftover bacteria that got absorbed early by our ancient ancestors yeah single or by our ancient single cell ancestors and the same thing happened with like uh, eukaryotic plants which if you're looking at trees or basically any plant you can see it did the same thing except it did it with one of these bacteria that was uh, uh, like a head photosynthesis so you end up with the chloroplasts being the equivalent following following that era like until you get between the Huronian glaciation and multicellular life showing up, you got this two billion year period. And unfortunately, we actually don't have very good records for that particular period of time, uh, especially just prior to the what they call a great Cambrian explosion when you start seeing multicellular life out everywhere. Just prior to that, we're, we're actually, the records aren't great for about 200, 500 million years in that. Seems relatively boring though, really. I mean, if yeah, it's yeah, just I mean, a bunch of bacteria. Compared- <laughs> yeah, you get a bunch of bacteria. Oh, now life. Hey, big thing. Um, so it took three billion years for any kind of complexity to evolve. Yeah, it takes a long, long time, and it's and it almost looks like kind of a semi-accident thing that just happened to work out. And you never know like how long these these things go on for because obviously we don't have perfect records, but we know that, like when the big things happened. Um, so the next big and that's what we call the Cambrian exp- explosion. Cambrian right? explosion. Yeah. And so the really the next big thing that happens to the atmosphere, though, is the Carboniferous era. So this is basically the first trees discovering, hey, we can make cellulose. And uh, at this period of time, cellulose, hey, it's a really, really strong, flexible material. You can build trunks out of it. It's really strong. It's, you know, you know, it's excellent. And then, and then it takes millions of years for bacteria to learn how to eat it right exactly like 70 million years so so it would have just been a friggin mess yeah like, like yeah. tree trunks everywhere piling up like what kind of trees are we talking because there were no angiosperms yet right no so it's no just there like weren't they, they basically were... what we'd call conifers yeah I, I, I can't the the name of the tree is escaping me right now but uh they... like am i picturing a spruce tree no it's it's a more like a palm tree be a little more comparable. Like palm trees. And they're quite, and, they were quite and tall. And like a million years worth of palm trees, dead palm trees beneath it. Millions and millions of years worth. Yeah, and this is the thing. Like, imagine all the trees were suddenly made out of plastic. Uh, <laughs> and, then, and then have that situation go forward for, for a seven, million years. For millions upon millions of yeah. years. Yeah. So, so what kind of creatures are running around this, or rather stumbling through this, <laughs> this world? this mess uh, at this stage you've got multicellular creatures so you know you're talking no animals uh there are animals absolutely animals so uh you got giant uh also during this era because you've got all of these plants producing huge amounts of oxygen the oxygen level spikes up again to like 30 35 percent so you have giant arthropods so when i say arthropods if we're talking scorpions we're talking bugs bugs so there's yeah. giant bugs running along a million years worth of tree trunks yeah exactly and you know and you've got giant dragonflies that are you know have three foot wingspans and are the size of large birds like it's a really wonky era um and and eventually what ends is that you know all these trees piling up year after year after year they are so they're taking co2 turning it into carbon and then it's getting 
squished down below them. And this turns into our coal reserves. These all come from this Carboniferous era. Um, so when we burn coal, we're, we're actually just saying, hey, you know what, we're going to take that CO2 that's been locked away for 200-odd million years, and we're going we're gonna to return it. Return it to the system. And by the way, the Carboniferous, it was broken up into two eras. The first and the second. The first ended with an ice age, and then the second also ended with an ice age. And both of these are caused by... So all this carbon is being... Sucked out of the atmosphere. And so the temperature drops. And it drops. And and you end up with another ice ball earth type situation. So, and so that's... this This is the most... Okay, so, and so we're talking about, like... There's a, there are a couple more ice ages since that period. And Earth being in an ice house state is basically when they whenever you hear someone talk about that, it basically means that there's glaciers at one or both of the poles. Uh, so we so are, I mean we were in an ice house. We are in an ice house. We still are. Yeah, we're we're yeah. Uh, on the warm edge of an ice house, but we're at an ice house currently. Versus a hot house, you're you're talking, you know. No, none of that to be spoken of. You've got, you know, forests going right up to the poles. And, which is not an uncommon then, thing. Has, has the earth ever gotten so hot that, like, forests can't grow? Uh, well, and this is the thing, is that we have really good, like, from that uh, Eocene maximum, it looks like forests, even during that incredibly hot period, were still growing at the equator. So, so what's incredibly hot? Like, how, like, what was the average temperature? Um, so basically I think at its peak during the, again, the, the Eocene thermal maximum, we're talking 12 degrees warmer than current. 12 degrees. So average temperature would be about 30. Uh, 26, 27, 28, sort of in that range. Yeah. And so, I mean, but that means that there's more extreme highs too, right? So you'd have, you'd have days that are like 50. Uh, possibly. Again, we we don't exactly have a model that like we've got all our climate models, but we've never run a full scale test to see what this. So we don't really means. know. So we don't even really know that in the car in sorry the Eocene thermal maximum, it was crazy crazy hot. That's just kind of speculation. Oh, we know it was crazy crazy hot at the poles because we have forests right. growing there. Right. Um, the current estimates had the Arctic Ocean at twenty degrees Celsius on average year round. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> this is why you could have palm trees on the North Pole because it was warm, really, really and warm. And so do we know, like, do we know what the equator was like at that time? And that's the thing. We still have records from areas that should have been there suggesting that it wasn't like a wasteland or anything. There were still trees growing. There was still stuff happening. And this is the thing. Like you start talking about hothouse earth and rainfall increases substantially in a lot of areas. So you might have these wet tropical rainforests going across the whole planet if you raise the temperatures 12 degrees, which is kind of, hmm. yeah. But it doesn't necessarily... So, I mean, it's not like when, if you're saying rainfall is increasing, that's one of the people's big concerns about climate change is that rainfall patterns might change and it's not going to rain where we grow our crops and, and we're all going to starve to death. And that's actually a significant concern because you, you're going to have areas that are currently extremely dry become extremely wet and you're going to have areas that are currently quite wet become very dry. You're just, I mean, but you're, you're, you're saying that, but you're also saying the last time that this happened, there were forests at the poles and it didn't seem to be the end of the world. No, and it, it wasn't the end of the world, but it's, it's just, it's a big substantial change from where we currently are at. And 
you know, it's hard. It's, it would be very hard to definitively say that the like the world will not be uninhabitable if we raise the temperature four degrees. It may not be great for our civilization, but overall, we'll probably get by. Let's touch on the uh, Permian Triassic okay. boundary bend as we're doing the history. Okay, so that so, that, that happens actually prior to the thermal maximum by about 10, 10 million, 15 million years. So this is a big extinction of everything. Well, everything died. Dinosaurs, um, most of the coral, um, a bunch of bunch of stuff died. Yeah, it was it was a pretty. Except big for event. I saw there's like this like rat like dinosaur with like an ugly nose that like was the only thing that lived, and they were like they're everywhere. Yeah. They account for like ninety percent of the fossil beds, and I guess they just ate everything. Yeah, something. Well, something's got to survive, right? There's, yeah. a, there's always a few things that uh, somehow sneak through the... Uh, the rats. Yeah, exactly. Rat dinosaur. <laughs> or the literal rat type man. And so why did everything die? Like what Like what? So in that, in that situation, you've got a giant asteroid coming down and uh, hitting the planet. Are we sure that the PT was a was an asteroid? Because like when, when I read all that stuff, it seemed like there were all sorts of theories no one really knows. Okay, so the first thing is we know there was an asteroid. It was a big asteroid. Whether this caused the full extinction or not is another thing entirely. So when they're talking about the alternative theories, like we have we have great evidence for a big impact, but there's a lot of other things that are happening simultaneously. So you have this like, big... Wasn't there a whole bunch of volcanism as well? Exactly. So on the other side of the planet, you have the Deccan Traps form. Now, it seems... I don't know what that is. So the Deccan Traps are an area in India, and they are... Um, basically the area where all this volcanism takes place. Right. And so you've got basically a volcano there, even now with lava over a several hundred mile square area to several kilometers of depth. So it's just... And like the, the coolest thing that I read too is that like this volcanism might have ignited some of those coal reserves like those massive and this is one of the things so if you look millions at, of years of forest exactly so even if you look in modern maps like india has a lot of coal reserves and it, a lot of them are in the area around the deccan traps so it very easily could have just burst through one of these areas and rapidly raised the temperature and this is after having like a 1000 year winter after a giant asteroid hits <laughs> so you've got like really like it's like okay we're gonna punch you and then we're gonna punch you again and then we're gonna kick you over you're down like for thousands of years thousands to millions of years it's a really bad time to be alive especially if you're a dinosaur yeah and of course eventually all this ends but by that point you know 70 percent of stuff on earth is dead and you know everything's starting again from scratch so i mean really in all fairness is there any reasonable scientific argument against the fact that carbon dioxide traps heat Unf we're admitted we've we're going to double it and that's going to have a major impact on the climate unfortunately i i i would like there to be a good argument against it but there's really no evidence to back up the counter arguments ultimately this is going to happen the question is are we willing to live with the consequences what actions are we willing to take to either ameliorate or let this happen and what do we do about it like the fact that whether it's going to happen or not that that's that's out the window now at this stage it's it's the degree and what we do about it 
And I, I'm I, I'm on the conservative side of things, but this this one, the ev- if you listen to the evidence, it's very difficult to, unfortunately, come up with a good argument against it. The science is, unfortunately, to use a cliche, it's settled. You mean it's not a Chinese hoax to enlarge the government and take away American jobs? Um, fortunately not. If it was that, that would be a lot easier to solve. Cool. Well, I think that's like that's that's a decent amount of content on the science of climate change. Yeah, I agree. I think I think we can probably move on to kind of the next next sort of thing, which I I, I kind of want to talk a little bit about where this goes from here. Like, what what are the consequences of what we're doing?